Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the TOT Cast. My name is Ryan Greco, of course, being joined by Chris O'Kranich. And, uh, I mean, this is, uh, of course, one of the uh, our beloved basketball editions of the TOT Cast. Uh, we were back for another one, Chris. And, I mean, what a better time to be back than for a history-making event, right? How about the collapse? I mean, <laughs> we did get history, right? Christopher O'Kranich jumps right <laughs> off the bat. I'm going to this one over for that. My goodness. I'm not holding back on I mean, Golden State, they looked like they walked in there, thought they were going to win, you know. Casually strolled into Game 7, Steve Kerr said himself, and it bit him in the ass. Like, Steph Curry was very aloof throughout most of the night. The series. Most of the playoffs, to be honest. I mean, I do feel like we got cheated a bit with his injury where we weren't able to see the true regular season Steph Curry that we're accustomed to seeing. But at the same time, you got to know teams are gunning for you. you got a new NBA record for regular season wins. 73 wins. That's a huge accomplishment. But it means nothing without a ring. Everybody knows this. So they had to know everybody's got him for him. And to see him kind of not take teams serious throughout most of his postseason, it was it was kind of annoying at times. I'm not going to lie to you. It was annoying because they were so talented. They're, they're the best team in the NBA by far. But they just didn't take the Cavs serious and the Cavs made him pay. I think uh, – question for you. And I, want, I, want, I really do want your opinion on this because even though we've, we've discussed the playoffs at length, both on this – podcast and also off the air did you ever feel did you ever get the sense that Steph Curry just started getting bored with this league in general just like he started kind of almost not just believing his own hype but also just seeing how easy it was for him to score at certain times during the regular season and then even getting into the playoffs where he had already won the title he had already won the MVP now he's won the MVP twice where he just kind of got to a point where he's just like hey you know what this isn't that so so much of a big deal to me anymore. I got so many other things outside of my life going on right now. Okay, during yeah. during the regular season maybe, but and this might be a bit of a hot take I'm about to say, but I feel like as the competition got stiffer and guys started going at him more, it started Russell Westbrook, even Damian Lillard to a certain extent. He backed off. Anytime things got tougher in this NBA postseason here, Curry just was a shell of himself. And anytime the moment got bigger and the clutch situations came up, did we see Curry ring the bell at all during this postseason? No. Look at what the Cavs did. They literally, they dared him to drive this entire series, almost from games four to seven. They said, drive, take it. And he wanted to shoot threes and do his behind-the-back passes and whine to the refs and all this other crap. And anytime the moment got bigger, he folded. Whereas even if LeBron, his jump shot, we know he can't shoot anymore. It's not great. But he found ways to make his teammates better. He led this entire series in every statistical category for both teams. Yes, he did. So he made an impact everywhere. And when the moment got bigger, hey, the block, even Kyrie oh making goodness. the three. But where was Curry anytime the moment got big? Nowhere. So I just felt like it started in Portland a little bit with Damian Lillard when he was taking it to him. And then when Russell Westbrook, people can pull up the stats and say make a certain case about how he defended him well. Watch the games. Watch the first four games when Russell Westbrook was guarded by Steph Curry and he absolutely annihilated him. And then when they put Klay Thompson on, it changed the whole series. Mm-hmm. But Curry could not handle anybody this whole entire postseason covering them. He backed off in the big moments, so they could chalk up to boredness in the regular season, but I, I chalk it to a low level of compete in this postseason here. And it, it was frustrating because this year you're at the very top moment, and you don't want to bring it. I don't get it. I, I think it really just came down to to your point where he really just seemed like when he backed off, it was, it was him just kind of resting on the laurels that he's already gained. Uh, but I do want to bring something else up as well. And, I you know, speaking of hot takes, I think this – this could be another good one here when you're thinking of watching this game or when you're seeing this game. 
LeBron James. I think that was about as much of a Jordan-esque performance that you could have asked for from any athlete since Jordan. And I'll explain why. Coast, how many times, you and me, Chris, did we grow up watching Michael Jordan? Especially near the end of his career when he didn't have the legs and he had the physical ability. We're not talking about the Wizards people. We're talking about the Bulls still. 97, 98, when we just started paying attention to basketball. I remember times where I would, we would, I would sit there and I'd watch him face against the Toronto Raptors over at the Sky Dome. And, um, uh, you know, he would almost be nonchalant and almost non-existent for the first three quarters. But that was just a testament to how much help and how many great players he had around him. Like, like the Paxons, the Kerrs, the, uh, you know, the, the Charles Oakleys to, to do the dirty work and the, um, uh, sorry, the Dennis Robbins, obviously. The Scotty Pittman's at, Pippins at time to well, guard. Kukoc, man. Kukoc should yeah. score a lot for them, too. Guys, but not just scoring, even defense. Guys, you know, there's times where Pippen, you know, people like to talk about how great of a defender Jordan was. And, yes, he was when the moment was right, especially in the later part of the game. But Pippen was guarding a lot of those guys most of the time. Yeah. And just to see how LeBron James almost seemed like he was coasting for those first three quarters. And the only reason he was even able to do that, and I'll say this again as well. I, I was talking about this earlier today is, Kevin Love, how important was his were his rebounds and Tristan Thompson and his work under the rim? And just to give LeBron the energy that he needed to basically make that push, to get those kind of run down the floors, to get those crazy block the blocks that we saw on defense and just be that fourth quarter player that we needed him to be or we need we that Cleveland needed him to be or people needed him to be at the time. Just to see that, I mean, it just – it was the most Jordan-esque performance I think I've ever seen from anyone outside of Jordan. He played, what, 47 minutes last night, too? Him and Draymond Green didn't yep. get off. Yeah. So that's all I need to know about how important those two players are. I think if there's one Jordan comparison you could draw with LeBron in terms of comparing their twilight stage of their career, Jordan didn't give a rip about the regular season, and it showed throughout the later half where they would just kind of coast through the Bulls and yep. win. Cleveland's doing the same thing now, specifically LeBron, where you see him. The regular season is basically just, you know, it's kind of a test run for him to kind of work out some kinks, get loose, and then when the playoffs comes, he ramps it up. And I feel like... He's going to put less and less of value on the regular season and just make it to the postseason and go off then. And we're going to see that going forward a lot more with him. Mm-hmm. But I feel like last night was just – he just lived in the moment and he, he killed it. <laughs> did the uh, Cavaliers win it or did the Warriors lose it? Last night, I feel like it was a little bit of both. I feel like the Percentage Warriors – Percentage-wise. Percentage-wise. I'd honestly say 50-50 because there were some moments where you can really circle back to like – I'd say Steph Curry gave them about eight – Eight free points. You look in the first quarter there where he shot that three leaning in. It was kind of like a follow-through three that he missed. And then he started crying to the refs immediately after. And Jared Smith threw that beautiful full-court pass to Kyrie Irving for the lay-in. That was two points there. You see when he he was trying to dribble out of traffic carelessly. He did that double behind the back thing with uh, top of the three there. And Richard Jefferson picked his pocket. Easy transition lay-in. Then you look at the other behind the back pass he made. So like these, these are mistakes that kind of kept mounting for the Warriors. And it cost them. I think what really hurt the Warriors was not having Andrew Bogut. And the reason why I say it is because they couldn't get any good minutes out of Festus Azili or Anderson Vergeau. Always in foul trouble. Not even that they're in foul trouble. They're just bad players. Azili's okay, but he just doesn't match up well with what was going on in this game. The Cavs, all they did, every time Azili was on the floor, is they just run a high pick-and-roll screen, and they would literally get Azili to switch on LeBron, and it was free money. Free money. Oh, he yeah. bullied him for four straight possessions, and they had to sub him off. Yeah. And Vergeau was... They did the same thing with Curry, too. Whenever LeBron got that... Got that mismatch with him, too. Yeah, but they wouldn't run the, the high screen and roll situation to get him. It was always a 1-5 screen where they would kind of lure Azealia to the top, and mm-hmm. then LeBron would just crush him every time, Yeah, which which made sense. But they weren't able to get any minutes from a big man that could help them, and I, I feel like that really hurt them. And the Cavs, 
they turn it up in the second half and things really change from there. You, you could say they got a bit of a favorable whistle, but I feel like for the most part, their intensity and their effort level was a lot higher than what Golden State's was. Absolutely. And it's a lot easier to say that the refs played a bigger part in it than they actually did because of the reactions of the crowd. Uh, when, I mean, there, I think there was maybe one time watching that entire game where I saw a whistle that went a certain way and I was like, okay, yeah, that looks questionable. Every other time it looked like it was legitimate, in my opinion. Well, to be fair, when you look at the way the two teams are playing, Cleveland was getting a lot of their scoring, attacking the basket and getting in the rim. You're going to notice a lot more body contact and off-ball contact when you're mm-hmm. driving in the cup. The Warriors, when they're shooting as many threes as they were, it, it's – how many times do you see fouls called for shooting threes? Not very often. It's got to be blatant. It's like usually drawn off a And that was pretty fake. damn blatant. Yeah, but that, that's the thing. Like the Warriors were crying about certain calls, and mm-hmm. you can even make it to a certain extent when LeBron drove in the fourth quarter there to go and lay it in. And Iguodala, it kind of like he blocked him, but he, he got his hand, and that's what made the shot miss. Mm-hmm. LeBron didn't cry about that. He ran back on D. There was just a different mindset, a different attitude. Whereas the Warriors were nonchalant and the Cavaliers, they wanted it and it ended up paying off. Absolutely. Long. And let's make that clear as well. We've we've gone after LeBron on this podcast a number of times for crying for fouls. We didn't see any of that in Game 7. Oh, yeah. No, he's the king of that. Like, he is the king of – him and Dwayne Wade. Those are two guys that cry for fouls like nobody else. But to his credit last night, how many seem cry? How interesting was it to see Dwayne Wade courtside for that? They're, they're best friends. Like that—that that was pretty cool, I must say. Yeah, I think it was. That was one of the cooler things that we've seen. Because how often do you ever see, you know, anyone of any opponent in that kind of situation? Like I can't remember the last time that one superstar was there for another superstar when they were winning a championship, like that in the same sport. Well, it's like you always say, LeBron is the super friends, right? The league is full of super yeah. friends. They waited the biggest best friends. That's that's true. I mean, any uh, any Cleveland rumors for him? Uh, I'm sure they'll come up, but. That'd be that'd be harder than uh, than it sounds. It's, simple. it's not that simple. No, of course not. And at the end of the day, Wade is a, is a career man. So he's going to be in uh, Miami most likely for the rest of his career. That was the team that drafted him. Yeah, uh, there's no was, reason to leave. Exactly. And and so with that being said, I mean, we do have a certain uh, event coming up, speaking of which, in uh, the coming uh, week, that is. And we will soon find out if any of these young up-and-comers will be uh, – will be career men on specific teams. Uh, this, of course, is the NBA draft. And, um, of course, we've got a, actually a couple of horses in the race here for the GTA, don't we, Chris? Yeah, there's actually a couple of players that are – the two most prominent ones are obviously Jamal Murray and Thon Maker. Um, yeah. A guy like Stefan Jankovic from Mississauga here. He, yes. He'll probably go late second round, probably undrafted. He'll get a shot. Yeah, but he'll get a hopefully, shot somewhere. Hopefully, we hope. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, those three guys are probably the, the three biggest guys to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Jamal, obviously, is top ten pick. I mean, it's no secret. Everybody knows that. Could go as high as, man, top four. I mean, what more could you ask from the kid from his only year in college? We all knew he was going to be a one and done. We had even Steve Nash telling us that at, at one point, even just right out of high school, he could have went to the NBA. And which is all the more interesting because it's interesting that a kid that could have went straight to the league and would have probably fared much better compared to now Thon Maker, who's now deciding to go straight to the league. And there's a lot more questions around him, aren't there? There's tons, man. I mean, with Thon Maker, it's like we've said in the past. Well, I've said this numerous times with him. People can draw the KG, Kevin Durant comparisons. You know, that's a possibility. But let's talk about the other side of the coin, too. It's a possibility. A guy like Jonathan Bender, who... Raptors fans should remember because yes. we drafted him fourth overall, then we traded him to Indiana for Antonio Davis. But the point is, Jonathan Bender was so far ahead of his time. He was this freak seven-foot athlete who could dunk, he could shoot, he could run the floor. Knee injuries derailed his career. But at the time, 
he was considered this cyborg athlete that was yeah. going to change the way the NBA was being played. We know how that story went. I know, granted, health issues derailed him, but he never really was what we thought he could be. Tom Maker could easily be the same thing. We've both watched him play numerous times. Very nice kid. Very well put together. But at the same time, I don't feel that he's NBA-ready personally. He's just – he can shoot. He can dribble a bit. Defensively, I don't know if his body's going to be able to keep up with some of the bigger guys because whatever team takes him has to draft him to fit his skill set. He's can't take him. soaking wet still. Yeah, they can't take him to, to play something that he can't play, right? Like what you're taking him is to literally have a guy that is – Kind of a, a seven foot wing player. Mm-hmm. Any team that wants to put him down low and turn him into a banger and oh, that, a post player, good luck. You got you got to wait with that. I and, feel like he's like a, yep. a kind of like a D league project in a sense where he's he's gonna have to take time to develop, put some weight on, add some new elements of his game, whether it be with his back to the basket, ten feet out. Even you know what, it's gonna be totally different taking guys from the perimeter and driving on them or hitting pull up threes at the NBA level as opposed to the high school level. Totally different. Every single one of them will be able to stay with him, but more fright, frightening, fright, frighteningly for him will be the fact that these guys, even though they may not even be able to match his size, are going to be just as quick, but even scarier. They're going to be just as strong, if not stronger. He's not going to be able to force his way into the paint the way that you know he would like to on most cases when he's playing against kids that are anywhere between the ages of 15 and 18. There's a huge difference. Well, the biggest thing for me that I think he'll struggle with is the mental side of the game and the reason why I say this is because he's only been playing basketball for four or five years. The way he yeah, processes that, yeah, information, yeah, the way he yeah. processes information in terms of the way the court's going to break down, plays, off-ball movement, a, a lot of the things in the NBA, they derive from off-ball movement. It's not always just ISO. I know we see a lot of ISO stuff, but he's not going to be an ISO player in the NBA. Learning to kind of move without the ball in your hands and creating opportunities that way is going to be a huge adjustment for him because defenders are going to know where he's going to try and get to. They're going to see things, and he's going to have to learn that side of the game that you know what, at the high school level, you don't have to. You can get away with being the best athlete on the floor. Yep. And now in the NBA, you can't be doing that. So I don't want to sound like we're, we're kind of shitting on the kid because I think he's he's got a lot of potential. But at the same time, I just feel like the learning curve and the jump that he's about to undergo is very steep. I will I will give him this. And I, I just want to say this right now like and just put this out there as well. To people out there, because a lot of the big conversation now is how much you don't or how much you haven't seen of this kid play. Well, take it from the two guys that have sat down and watched this guy play game after game after game for the past two years. This is somebody that he knew right away the most important thing about him, especially if he knew right right away that he wanted to try and make that push for the NBA, is his motor and his willingness to learn, much to your point, Chris. With that all being said, physically, once again, to your point, he is not there. He is going to be somebody that is either going to be on the bench or he's going to be somebody in the D-League trying to work on his game. It's just the same reason why... I don't think either one of us ever agreed that him going straight to the league is a smart decision for his career in the long term. Because, to be perfectly honest, in my opinion, he's going to get exposed. He's going to get exposed coming up against these guys. He, I think, I think this was strictly a money move for him. This was an a, a, an opportunity for him to say, well, it, and it kind of bothers me. It bothers me, Chris, because I, I'll, I'll say this right now. I think him trying to jump to the league, it isn't him believing that he's good enough to make it to the league. I think it's him believing this is as valuable as I'm ever going to be. And that's him not having faith in his own ability going to the college game, which means he's afraid that he might get exposed there, lose out on a couple, about six, seven figures, whatever it is that would be, whatever the signing bonus would be, the difference between going in the first round and the second round. And then he is not going to eventually be what he thought he would be. So we thought he'd try and get his money now. He's going to grab what he can now because of what we've been hearing about either reports of either it's 
uh, guardians or whether it's uh, the the reports on whether what he wants. It's That's no one knows. No one necessarily knows. But at the same time, if we're if I'm going to go off base of what I've been told, what I've been told with my own two years from people in the camp, then we're going to be then it's his decision. And if it's his decision, I'm sorry, it's not the right decision. I agree with that. And the thing that kind of bothers me a bit is you get draft evaluations. You can request them. You'll get certain things. You'll get a lot of information about yourself from evaluators to, quite frankly, use and evaluate yourself. Yep. So you know where your draft stock stands. And being as young as he is, going to college will probably only help his game. And if it doesn't, there's not a chance of him – he would have to play so poorly to diminish his value or even lower it. it. It's hard to even fathom how bad that would have to be. It would have to be an absolute train wreck. And the thing is – is by taking an extra year to get better, and let's say even playing in like like a Kentucky, where Calipari he gets he's notorious for bringing in these big seven foot athletes, getting them to run the floor, getting the dribble. He always says, first day of camp, what do we do? I get these big guys to dribble nonstop and run the floor and shoot. That's it. That's where the game's heading, and that's all I get them to do. So using that for example, how would that not help him? You look at guys like Scalabistri, Anthony Davis. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Marcus Scal, Cousins. By the way. We'll get well, to that. Scal, in a Scal's a hell of a player too. He's he's a project as well, but. Like when you look at Thon, I don't understand how something like that wouldn't have helped his draft stock in the following year. So it's I feel like it's it's a lot of money. It's got to be. It doesn't. We won't understand the personal reasons that that's for him to know and decide and all that. But I just I feel like there's other motives behind this that have forced him to go to the NBA route and all the best. But I just I think college would have been helpful. Absolutely, and I completely agree. And I just think that he looked at what happened with Scal and saw that he wasn't able to have the productive year that a lot of people thought he would have. And Thon just got cold feet when it came to the college game and just thought, well, if that could happen to him, what would happen to me? Okay, well, here, Scal was projected to be a top three pick entering this season. Yes. When the season started. Yep. Now he's a top ten pick. And I he's think still a lottery pick. I be- you know people can be that greedy though. Yeah, but shit, man, it's like you're still <laughs> the pay difference is not gigantic anymore like where the number one pick and the number 10 pick like it's a it's it's substantial but it's not enough for you to be like well i'm gonna hold out or i'm gonna go now like thon's not even a lottery pick right now if he is it'd be shocking it'd be like a bruno caboclo type deal where the Raptors took him as high as they did 19 and people were like he's a second rounder so if he's not a lottery pick think about it this way he could play himself into being a lottery pick if he went to college Teams could see him on a bigger stage. I could see him play against better competition. That's really what it was from a lot of evaluators that I spoke to. Because he was going to go to teams that were going to March Madness, no 100%. matter what. He was like, 100%. Arizona State, like with Bobby Hurley there. That, there was a lot of connections that he's he's made and his guardian, Ed Smith, has that, quite frankly, would have put him in a position to succeed. They were very calculated with everything they've done throughout this whole thing until now. They've made this question move going to the draft, and it's kind of okay. <laughs> Scratch your head. but true. I just. I just feel like he could have only played himself into a higher stock. And I think that's the same reason why he decided to try and make the jump now. Because I'm all, I think the other thing that we also have to take into consideration here is this is a kid who's been constantly on the move. I mean, the, his most permanent stay in the last 10 years of his life has been at Orange uh, in Orangeville at Athlete Institute. Well, here. These two seasons he's done this. But... What I'm really just trying to say is I guess maybe I'm trying to analyze the human aspect of this and the mentality of, you know, a kid who came from originally a war-torn country who's been able to made that move to Australia. And just I, I can imagine that maybe he's thinking the same way a lot of other kids, especially, you know, we see this all the time in the same way with the NFL draft is there's a lot of people invested around the athlete to try and make that that push and make and, and basically say, real thing. I want there. He's a lot. Let's let's just call a spade a spade, Chris. 
He's a fucking lottery ticket for a lot of people around him. Yeah, he's he a lottery is. ticket. That happens all the time in the NFL. Look at a guy like Trent Richardson, man. Exactly. So when you see that though, and you let's could it be that this this is the reason why? And he sees himself as a lottery ticket for his family? Because once again, let's go back to exactly what's been told. Like I'll go back on what I've been told is that he's a grown man to make his own decisions. You know, people just try and advise him the best that they can. So if he's a grown man making these decisions at 18, 19 years old, what's to say he doesn't view himself as a lottery ticket to say, you know what, I'm ready to get my family up to a higher standard of living. I don't necessarily want to spend another year or two being uh, a, a poor, uh, quote unquote, poor college student because, you know, we, they, they never get paid, Chris. They don't, don't get, get taken care of at all, right? Don't get me started. <laughs> so And so let's go down that. So we're going down that alley now and we're talking about that. If this kid isn't, it doesn't feels that he's not going to be that, uh, he doesn't want to do that extra year and he now wants to try and make that happen, then who are we to tell him no? And maybe this is the exact reason why we're in this situation in the first place. No, I totally agree. I, I Again, I do feel like there's external factors that are definitely kind of swaying him to go this route as well. Yeah, because uh, let's be honest. What was the what was the wisest decision we made at 18? No, that's the thing. You're a kid, man. You're going to make mistakes. <laughs> Anybody 19. who was ever that age was yeah. has made a ton of mistakes. But yeah, you had a point, but, so go ahead. So something that evaluators have brought up before in terms of other sports is uh, I had a friend, CFL draft, got drafted, all that. But during his interview process, he's somebody who's played at three different schools. He's transferred three times throughout his career. Juco, D2, D2, and then played uh, D1. And one of the questions that the evaluators asked him was, are you like a runaway bride? Do you have a hard time committing to schools? Is that why you keep transferring? Now, if you look at Thon, he's been everywhere. They could ask him, do you have a hard time committing? What's going on here? Why are you always transferring? Can we count on you to commit? Like these are certain questions that have probably came up in interview processes, and I, I'm I'd be curious to hear his answer. I'm sure he'll say no, but these are things that teams are going to ask you. It's it's a lot of things that they're going to see. They everybody can see he has physical talents. He's raw, but he has physical talents that you can mold into a player that, quite frankly, again could have the ceiling of a Kevin Durant or a Kevin Garnett, or he could be a Jonathan Bender, but. The point is, is the physical tools are there, and a lot of it's going to be mental with him, and it's going to be interesting to see what team commits to him and how they're going to help him on that process. Because if these external factors that we feel are as large as we think they could possibly be, that's a big deal. There's a lot of pressure on this kid, as they are for all these draft picks, but it's something you're going to have to help him deal with. And I just feel like it's not so much about him growing up as a basketball player. It's going to be more so of him growing up as a person and oh, doing God, everything yeah. that's coming with it. And I'm scared for him because I don't think this is a kid who's been told no in a very long time. Well, get ready. The first NBA camp will be eye-opening. And he'll sink or swim. I think he'll do well. But I think the way he's going to view being the 12th, 13th man on the bench, a very limited rotation player, or even a D-League player, will be telling. It's going to be the first time he's going to go through a lot of adversity. Maybe the first time he did was at the Bows, at the Nike Hoop Summit, sorry. Then the yeah. Bowsteel game where he, he shit the bed for back-to-back yeah. performances last year. And he was really down himself. And People were like, is he for real? Is this just all hype? And then he kind of came back and he had a great performance at the Under Armour camp in Charlotte there that last summer. Yep. And then, you know, he kind of played a bit, but he, he picked and chose when to play down the yep. stretch here because he knew he was declared for the draft and nobody else did. Yep. And eventually it made sense. So how he's going to handle adversity within the NBA here is, is big. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, no, I think you summed it up perfectly there. So with that even being said, there's been kind of rumblings of the idea of him being a late round pick and then. Of course, the inevitable question now comes up, seeing as the Raptors are a late-round pick, what are the idea of you know seeing a guy like this that's kind of been developing in, in Toronto's own backyard, so to speak? Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts on if the Raptors were to 
take a flyer on this kid, where would he fit in? Well, how how would he stand out on the 905? Then immediately summon the 905, in my opinion. He, he if he was to play on the big roster, it's as a 12 or 13th man. But is he really taking a spot from Bebe? Is he really taking a spot from Patrick Patterson? Is he really taking a spot from JV? Is Bebe staying? Bebe, yeah, Bebe will stay. I don't see why he wouldn't stay. He's on a cheap contract. Front court, it may not be the greatest front court. Like they need help up front. But I, I feel like a guy like Thon would be somebody that they would still put in the D League. If they were to address their front court needs, I feel like they would do it with their first pick, the ninth pick, yeah. if they were to keep it. But for Thon to come to Toronto... You know Masai's seen him play. You know mm-hmm. all of their brass has seen him play numerous times. Um, one thing I noticed at the Biosteel game, Masai, Masai was there. Yeah. Masai walked right Everyone by Everyone was there. Well, Masai walked right, right by Thon and his guardian, Ed Smith. Just a quick high by. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to say he's disinterested. I don't want to read too much in the one interaction. But at the same time, I feel like there's there might be something to take out of that. I think, yeah, and, and if there's anybody that would have that kind of eye for things, it'd be Masai, but also Masai is also the same guy that's drafted Bruno Caboclo, also has a lot of faith in length and athleticism and oh, running he, the floor. he fits the bill of what Masai right? likes in terms of length and athletic guys, but so does a guy like Czech Diallo from Kansas, who's pretty much mini baby, and he's a better defender than Thon. It depends what the Raptors value here. Do they value another long-term project that they can build through their D-League, or do they want a guy who can make an impact a little faster? That's the thing they got to ask themselves. How many projects do they want to take on? If you keep taking all these all these projects, I mean, if they don't work out, you're kind of going to handcuff yourself long term. You can't keep stockpiling on players that you know are two years away from being two years away per se. I know that's the running joke of Bruno, but yeah. you got to get guys that eventually can contribute, which which they do have. Don't get me wrong, guys yeah. like Norman Powell, Bebe, Delon Wright, they're going to start making an impact next year. Yeah. But with Thon, it's like, what's your timeline of him? Where do you see him contributing? How do you see him fitting in? These are all questions that they're going to have to ask themselves if they feel like he can fit, and if he does, take them. But if not, there's other players that fit the bill a little better, in my opinion. And that's what's so frustrating about seeing this is that I think we all would have a much better idea of how he would fit into anywhere if he had just done a year of college. Well, yeah, you'd have a, you'd have more film to evaluate him on, better competition, yeah, him playing in a more OSB, structured environment. OSBA ain't shit. None of those other organizations that he's been playing in. Yes, it's top high school, but still. Well, a lot of times he's freewheeling at the OSBA. Or they're running the offense yeah. through him. <laughs> no, I, I've watched the games. Like some of them, oh, they've no, blown no, up by like so 40, 50 fine. points, and yep. he's not. It's it's not helping him. I mean, he's no. the best player on the floor at all times, and he's crushing these kids. Now, when you watch them play some of their tournaments down south, he's had his hands full a few times, you know. But he's still been able to take over games and put up these gaudy 27, 14 stat lines, like double mm-hmm. doubles galore, some twenty twenty nights. Yeah. But in college, I just feel like at, at the same time too. You can argue that the college game is very restricted now where the coaches are almost smothering and overwhelming where they, they want you to do everything through them. They run every – like you guys, some people think Rick Carlisle's bad with, with the Mavs and the way he calls plays and basically runs the offense through his point guard. These college coaches are ten times worse. Absolutely. Where they're slowing the offense down to a snail's pace in a half-court set every goddamn time, and that, that doesn't translate into NBA game anymore. Oh, absolutely not. How many teams slow it down? It's it's a high-tempo pace, and, and that's, have- that, that's where I feel like – you know this, and he can easily go to a school like Kentucky, Arizona State, that plays a bit more up-tempo, that can help him develop. But it's just, I just, at the end of the day, I just feel like college would have been a better route for him. Uh, no, I completely agree. I just, at the end of the day, he's nothing can replace going up against better talent as opposed to going up against talent that you're just not ready for. And I know there's a better way that you could word it, but really that's what we're looking at right now. We're looking at just skipping a natural progression stage for a money grab. That's the way that I'm seeing it. Yeah, I mean, how many guys have came from high school to the NBA and lit it up in their first year? 
aside from like the LeBron James's. Kobe wasn't too shit hot his first year. KG was good, not great. Like he was, he was good. Don't get me wrong, he's mm-hmm. above average. But like even McGrady, like these are a lot of the guys that made the jump from high school to the NBA took time to develop. Mm-hmm. So and Dwight Howard too. To think he's going to be any different. And that's it, right? Like at the end of the day, a lot of these guys. Let's let's make one thing clear though as well. A lot of the guys who made that jump, the majority of them were good enough to last in the NBA. They they made All Star appearances. They did extremely well. Our our cautionary tale really is Sebastian Telfair, and even Sebastian Telfair was able to carve out an eight nine year NBA career where he was able to make it. It's just more about it's it's the, the conversation really. I think the best that we can summarize it is the conversation isn't whether Thon Maker will be a NBA player or not in the next two to three years or four years. The real conversation, I think, is how will he be a role player as opposed to him being an all-star by taking that natural progression of of uh, development for himself. I think he's a role player through and through, to be honest, at this point. Like, he has all-star, you know, next-level potential, but... Will he reach that right now? I feel like he's at least five or six years away from that, and he's a you long-term him, project. And you see him being more of a Sebastian Telfair than opposed to, say, uh, a Dwight Howard or Kevin Garnett or anyone else that no, you I, want to name out of high school. I think it's totally unfair to compare him to transcending talents like those guys. If you want to compare him to anybody, in my opinion, do it as like a J.R. Smith route. J.R. Smith came out of high school. took him a while to get going. He found his what his niche was, which was shooting a lot of threes, Yeah, and it's paid off for him. And quite frankly, he's became a, a very good defender, but... That took a while to develop. He was kind of a wild guy, erratic scorer, and then he finally put it together recently. I feel like he can follow a similar path where he can carve out a nice role for himself on a team. Hmm. Not not a Telfair. Telfair, there was so many issues that happened with him. His propensity to turn the ball over, his off-court issues, his weight. There's just tons of things that kind of plagued this kid for a long time, and it was and it was troublesome. Oh, yeah. I think if there's somebody that you – like the ideal situation for Thon Maker – would be to follow something similar to what Kristaps Porzingis did. But the Zinger didn't play high school kids. Like, sure, he never went to college, but he still played he professionally. Pro, he played, exactly, he played yeah. men overseas, yep. and it really showed this year. In the Spanish league. Yeah, he played I mean, he men. Was, <laughs> he was playing the second best league in the world, dare I say it. Yeah, it's just it's it's tough to kind of take a dump on kids night in, night out, and then go play men for any sport. It doesn't matter what yeah. sport it is, unless you're a generational guy like, like a Connor McDavid or – Man, even like Crosby in hockey, or you want to bring it to basketball, like LeBron James, like these are these are generational players that you see come out, and you're just like, wow, they're guys you have to see. And I I don't feel like Thon Maker is a generational talent enough that he can just make this jump from high school to the NBA and thrive. There is nothing that either one of us have seen with our own two eyes going on watching him play live that has made us go, yeah, he's going to go to the NBA right out of high school. There's absolutely. You can't. The only thing that I ever I ever gave to credit for Maker and every single time that I ever watched him play is that I have never seen a single person make a shot over him. But even then, now he's going up against men. You're not going up against him trying to block shots of 6'5 or 6'4 kids who are not going to have a consistent jump, jump shot to begin with. Now you're going up against 6'9, 6'10, 6'7. The average height in the NBA is 6'7, 6'8. I don't think people realize how freaking tall that is. Even if you're a seven-footer. Guys can create that space. Oh, they'll create it on him with jab steps, uh, crafty off-ball movement, pump fakes, a lot of things that you don't see at the high school level that these guys are going to use to – we're not talking create like a foot or two of space. They're going to create inches, and that's all they need because their releases are so damn fast. They're just so damn good that it's literally just going to need an inch and bang, bucket. And you're going to be like, holy shit, these guys are fast. <laughs> the game no. is totally different. The amount of kids that have said that making the jump yep. from any level, it's it's different. 
Hell, even JR, remember the first shot, the first three-pointer he made, the first step-back three-pointer he made over, uh, I think it was Draymond Green in that third quarter uh, last night watching that. I mean, Jesus, he literally had, as you said, inches Yeah, look at, look to at make Clay that Thompson. shot. Clay Thompson, Curry, all these guys, the, the release is insane. It's ridiculous, and that's it's almost that's how a lot of the robotic. league is. Yeah, and you're right, completely. So it's going to be very interesting to see how uh, Thonmaker turns out. Uh, I mean uh, – I'm fascinated. I know. I know you are as well, Chris. About yeah, it's compelling. Absolutely. I mean, just to see where it's going to head out. And at the end of the day, like all of these, all of these worries or these, you know, criticisms of him are warranted because he's going. If he's ready to make that jump and he thinks he's he's man enough to do it, then you know he's got to be ready to take the man criticism that comes with it. Um, uh, even with that said, I mean, uh, any any thoughts? Any quick thoughts on Jamal Murray before uh, we wrap this up? Uh, he's going to be exciting to see where he goes. He's a top ten pick for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd be surprised to see him fall to top seven. Yeah, floor general can shoot the three. Um, I've read a lot of reports that people are worried about his size a bit and whether he can defend guards the next level. I think that's a crock of shit, to be honest. But I think I think speed wise, it's going to be an adjustment for him as well. Like, I think people forget how elite a lot of these point guards are in the NBA. We're in a kind of a golden era for point guards right now, mm-hmm. and it's going to be such a transition. Imagine if he goes if he gets drafted to a team in the West in the West. That's a good point. Look at the point guards he's going up against I'd on a nightly basis. Guard almost he, well, he's too small for that. He's gonna get grinded with these just onslaught. It's literally, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's ridiculous. The kind of point guards you're facing on a night in and night out basis. It's a gauntlet. Like, let's say he plays in, I don't know, let's say L.A. Let's no, let's sorry, let's say he plays in Sacramento and they play Chris Paul. You know, then D'Angelo Russell if he stays in L.A. Mm-hmm. Then he gets Russell Westbrook. Then he gets an Eric Bledsoe. Like he's just getting a lot of great athletes on a night mm-hmm. in and night out basis that are gonna really test his game defensively, offensively. His IQ is off the charts. Fantastic ball player in that regard. He can he can move offenses around. Mm-hmm. He can do things in a crafty way that will get him open looks and also get his teammates open. So I feel like that's not the question for him. It's just a lot of things about his defense that people have said, and it's more so size. So yeah, and I think also just I'll I'll say this real really quickly, even just to be a little bit contrarian as well, is that you know him being you know being a rookie. Also, this also completely depends on where he lands. Is that he may not even be the starting point guard. He might not even be facing that so-called gauntlet that you're going to see because he may not be seeing a lot of those minutes. And it, it, I think that would actually, and I think you could agree with it me. I say that would be exactly. It would be the best case scenario for him for not being a starting point guard in the NBA. I think he's just not ready. I think he could take more of a Corey Joseph route in that sense. But even he has a little bit more talent than Corey Joseph. I think at this age, I think he's he's a lot more ready for the NBA and to do do work basically than Tyler Ennis. Or Corey Joseph, or anybody oh, yeah. that's came before him as a point guard. I think he is the best point guard, the best Canadian point guard that's came out of the country since Steve Nash. And I think the number one thing with Jamal is it's his compete level. It's the intangibles he brings that you just can't you can't put a value on. Yep. Like he sees the game a different way. Not only that, I mean, one of the first things I'll never forget, and I say this every time I, I bring him up, is yeah. the first time I went to watch him play, the first guy to lead everybody on the floor was Jamal. The first guy to lead every single drill was Jamal. The guy to pick up all the balls to get them off the floor was Jamal. The guy to lead every breakout was Jamal. The guy barking in between the huddles and, you know, getting players on off the bench and subbing was Jamal. He's just a flat-out leader, and it shows everything he does. And then Biosteel game, they mm-hmm. need to turn it up a bit. He cranked it up. In Kentucky, they needed some big shots this year. He made them. He just has this knack for making big plays in this level, this compete level that is – it's again, you can't you can't put an empirical value on it, and it just shows up all the time. And I feel like that's going to be his best asset that teams are going to fall in love with, and that's what's going to help him have a long career in the NBA. Uh, I could sum him up in three words: 
never looks rattled. Never. Yeah, he's very composed. Very composed. So it's going to be extremely interesting to see where he lands uh, in the uh, lottery draft. Maybe the Raptors will trade up for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually heard that the Raptors are – if there's one player they want to trade up for, it's Dragon Bender. But I feel like that would be a steep price. But I feel like that's – The return of the Benders, eh? That would be good, man. That kid's, <laughs> He can shoot. Yeah. It's, he can shoot. He can drive the cup. He's got a little bit of a mean streak to his game. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's kind of like his hero growing up. His hero was Tony Kukoc. So I feel like he has a little bit of Tony Kukoc in his game. Mm-hmm. That'd, be, I, that'd be a nice fit for Toronto. Oh, absolutely. I, I think we could need after this playoff run was more outside shooting. Yeah. Uh, and with, with that being said, I mean, I'd like to thank uh, everybody for listening in on this episode of the TOT cast. Uh, we're excited to see what's going to happen with the uh, NBA draft. But if you have any words first, just before that event, uh, we you can always reach myself at Ryan Greco 416. You can reach Chris O'Kranitz at Chris O'Kranitz. That's both for, uh, uh, what do you call it? Sorry, for, t- for Twitter. <laughs> you could also reach us on the uh, on Facebook at t- for Tip of the Tower. Uh, you can also uh, be sure to review the podcast, five stars. Always love that. Anytime, any day of the week. Much appreciated. And uh, always have yourselves a fantastic day. And we'll uh, see you next time.